iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. All right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store. So, how are you guys doing tonight? You doing all right? All right. Front row is really into it. Back of the store, not so much. Let's try it one more time. I want everybody same level of energy. Let's do this together as a group. How are you guys feeling tonight? Come on, beautiful. Awesome. That was, that was a bit much, but I'll take it. That was good. That was good. Awesome. All right, we're going to do something really cool here tonight. Obviously, we got Ed Burns coming down in just a second. It's going to be amazing. Uh, before we do that, again, Tribeca season, very exciting. Every year we get to do this, and every year we get to partner up with a really cool group of people over at a place called IndieWire. So before the event, I wanted to bring out somebody from IndieWire really quick to talk to you guys about that. Talk to you a little bit more about what's going on this week, so please make them feel welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, Basil from IndieWire. Thanks a lot, Matt. So uh, this is, uh, I think, I don't know how many years we've been doing these, uh, these talks with uh, Tribeca um, and the Apple Store. Um, we're going to keep on doing them for the next couple of days. Make sure to check out um, our website and Apple as well to find out who else is coming on board. Um, IndieWire, for those of you that don't know, is your online source for independent film news. Um, we cover film festivals. Uh, we do filmmaker interviews, a whole lot more. Check out IndieWire.com. Um, right now, we're just going to get right to it. I want to welcome to the stage the moderator for today's discussion. Uh, that's Matt Dentler from FilmBuff, and joining him, the, uh, the, the writer and the actor for Newlyweds, Ed Burns. So, round of applause for them. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, everybody, for coming out, especially on what is probably like the first really gorgeous day in a long time. So thank you guys for joining us. Uh, and thanks to IndieWire. Thanks to everybody at the Apple Store, Suzanne and everyone. It's great to, to be here for this event. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you, Eddie, for being here. Um, so Mr. Ed Burns, uh, multi-hyphenate, um, your new film, Newlyweds, premieres Saturday night. It's the closing night film of the Tribeca Film Festival. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Um, round of applause for that. Um, and uh, I, I'm assuming it's sold out, but if, if you guys want to wait on the rush line, you can maybe get tickets if you haven't already. Um, tell us, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of things about your, your, your filmmaking process, but let's just let's start with Newlyweds. Like how you had a film at Tribeca last year called Nice Guy Johnny, and now you have the closing night film a year later with Newlyweds. I mean, so, you know, I gotta, people got to wonder, when did you decide to make this film and what was the process like? Yeah, I mean, if uh, anyone's been following me on Twitter, they probably know. You've heard a lot of this before since I was sort of documenting it kind of as I went along. But um, we were doing a screening for Nice Guy Johnny with Tribeca and uh, SAP. And um, one of my friends from the festival said, you know, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary. You really need a film at the 10th anniversary of Tribeca since I've been involved with the festival since day one. Uh, and I, I did not have a script ready, but I sat down with my producing partner, a guy named Aaron Lubin. I said, we really, we need to be there next year. So, and, and when was this? Uh, I bet it's November. Wow, okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's November because, um, you know, I'll give you the whole, I mean, it's kind of crazy how this happened. Yeah. So I had an idea in my head. I made this film 10 years ago called Sidewalks of New York, which was a pseudo-doc. And we shot that film in 17 days for a million dollars. Uh, it was all handheld, and um, uh, we had a costume designer on that, but we didn't use a production designer. And because it was a pseudo-doc, um, we thought, oh, we'll just go into, uh, we'll find locations that feel like where these characters might live or the restaurants they would eat in, 
And on that film, you know, when we shot in Katz's Deli, they were still open for business. And, you know, we used the argument, well, if it is a dock, you're going to have to deal with that sort of the, the live atmosphere, the live sound. And, and it worked really well, but it enabled us to work so quickly. I mean, to shoot a feature in 17 days, if there's any filmmakers out there, you know, you know how tricky that is. So I knew that I wanted to do uh, another pseudo-doc. Also, I think it was the 10th anniversary of Sidewalks of New York. So Aaron and I thought, all right, a pseudo-doc. So what, what subject matter do we want to explore? And we thought about maybe doing sort of the Long Island version of sidewalks. Take six people out in the burbs who are linked through their sexual relationships. And I started a, uh, an outline of that, and I, I didn't like where I was going. And I was out to dinner with a bunch of friends. It was a, a couple's 10th anniversary. And someone at the table said, you know, guys, you've been married for 10 years. In this day and age, if it ended today, you could call it a success. You know, we all kind of laughed at that. And that was sort of where this script was born. The notion of, you know, what makes or how do we define a successful marriage? Um, so... This is the first time I ever sat down to write a script where I wasn't thinking about character first or story first, or a lot of times, even a movie like No Looking Back, it was just sort of um, uh, sort of atmosphere or location first. This was just a question. Um, and from that question is how I then started to build out the different types of relationships I wanted to play with. And then starting there, then started to build out who these characters were going to be um, and, you know, there was, a, there was a title at one time for the film, given that there are some love triangles in the film, that it would be Triangles Below Canal. Because I live in Tribeca. It's going to be the 10th anniversary of the festival. Uh, and I wanted the film to, to be a little bit of a love letter to Tribeca. Because, you know, I walk around the neighborhood for 10 years, and I constantly will walk down a street or into a restaurant and think, oh, one day I'll make a mental note that that would be a good place to shoot a scene. Um, so from all of that, uh, I kind of did a quick outline, wrote a couple of scenes, and right before Thanksgiving, my DP, a guy named Will Rexer, um, had told me about this new camera that he had been playing with, the Canon 5D. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with this camera, but it is the absolute game changer, levels the field for any independent filmmakers, if you saw the doc, uh, Hearts of da Darkness, uh, where Coppola said, you know, like, you're going to see 20 years from now, a seven-year-old kid is going to pick up a video camera and, and be able to redefine this whole thing. Well, that day has arrived with this camera because the camera costs $2,500. The lenses we bought were each probably, you know, maybe $300. It required, I mean, it, it, it is the, um, the carbon footprint of making a film like this is the smallest that you could possibly do because we used almost no lights. Um, it blew our mind what you could do with this tiny camera. And it looks like a still camera. So we went out and we did a camera test with one of the scripted scenes. Um, and that was before Thanksgiving. And we just brought my editor in, uh, Janet Gaynor, and we cut it together. And again, you know, we're sort of trying to find the look and the style and the editing style um, as we went along, and we kind of fell upon a, a different thing than Sidewalks was, given this camera. Uh, so then after Thanksgiving, we, I think we went out for two more days in early December, 
I'm shot, you know, 12, page, 12 maybe seven scripted um, pages of dialogue. And then each day with the actors, I would say, you know, let's improvise a scene in this location where instead of talking about X, we're going to talk about Y. Um, and in the, in the final version of the film, you know, maybe 10% of those improvised scenes ended up in the film in some fashion. A lot of times I would take the, the scripted version and then maybe pull two of the two interesting lines of dialogue or two lines of dialogue that work. So, anyhow, I'm rambling here. Uh, but basically, that's kind of how we shot it. And we shot 12 days over the course of four and a half months. The last day we shot was St. Patrick's Day. Um, like, like a month ago, basically. A month yeah. ago, yeah. yeah. And I, I literally just came from the sound mix uh, an hour ago, and I think we're done with the movie. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, you've got f uh, 72 hours. So you hours yeah. to make any yeah. last changes. Um, so, but presumably with this camera, then you're able to, as a director, you're able to get a sense of intimacy and you're able to, to block scenes in a different way. I mean, can, can you talk about how maybe that, the technical process influenced the narrative of the film? Yeah, well, again, so, you know, the, the, with this pseudo-doc uh, idea, what we were able to do was... Like I said, the camera looks like a still camera. Um, on this film, it really was, on some days, it was a one-man crew. You know, uh, Will Rex are holding the camera and two actors. And what we did for sound, you know, nine, probably, you know, uh, ten out of the 12 shooting days was we, we didn't have a boom. We had these, um, it's called an M audio track. It's a sort of a flash drive audio recorder that an actor would stick in their pocket we had a lavalier mic, and uh, you, you, we didn't have a mixer. You weren't riding the levels. Um, you just hit record. And then we would go to a restaurant like Walker's down in Tribeca, and I know the, the people that own the place, and said, look, we're making this really small little movie. Do you mind if we just come in and sit at a table and shoot a scene? You know, we, no one will know that we're making a movie here. There's no boom. There's no lights. And the thing that you get is you have actors acting or interacting in a live environment. So that gives you a very different performance. The other thing is, at no point does the actor, out of the corner of their eye, kind of vibe the lights, you know, or feel the boom above them. Or when you call cut, which we didn't do, uh, you know, you don't have the hair and makeup team coming in and primping them, or the wardrobe people coming in, or the set designer or set dresser coming in and doing a little something with the, the table. Uh, none of that existed. So the actors really fall into character in a different way. And what we noticed after the first day was, wait, we're capturing a very different kind of naturalistic performance here. I don't know if that's a word, naturalistic, but maybe it is. Um, but that's the kind of performance we were capturing. Um, and then that started to inform, as I, you know, again, you know, you're shooting the film over the course of four months, I'm rewriting this thing constantly. So then that started to sort of inform what I was doing with the scenes, and I started to pull it more, uh, you know, some maybe a little bit more broad comedy moments, and I started to pull back on that and try and explore, like, what are the, the more honest moments? And the other thing that was exciting to look at was, you know, these are all actors that I've worked with before. Um, all of them are, you know, I mean, have real training, unlike myself. Um, so we wanted to, it wasn't going to be about sort of acting acrobatics. 
You know, it wasn't going to be about the big screaming scenes or the dark brooding scenes. It was like, this feels real. So let's play these people as real folks. And the movie is only about the gray area, the things we tell one another, we don't tell one another, and, you know, and, and how that can sort of infect or inform, uh, in this case, a, you know, a newly married couple. Yeah, I mean, then that's, I mean, arguably that's harder for an actor than the bigger, the big, loud performances. Like you watch like Mike Lee movies and it's like they're so natural, but that's tough to pull off. Do you, do you, were you using the editing process then as part of the, the storytelling? I mean, were you sort of rewriting the script in the editing room as well, like around performances and things like that? Yeah, a couple of interesting things happened. I mean, one, I mentioned that we sort of improvised a bunch of scenes. Um, and what we would do is take that improv scene back into the editing room, cut the scene together, and then rewrite the scene based on what the actors brought. So I would say, for example, uh, you know, Carrie Bechet and I have a scene that took place outside of a diner uh, in Tribeca, and we improvised it. And it didn't quite hit everything that I needed out of the scene in order to move the narrative along. But given that you're improvising, there are those kinds of lines of dialogue also that, you know, it's, it's one of the characters in the scene is a 25-year-old woman. You know, I, I, you know, I try and write women well, but, like, you know, Carrie is going to be able to own that in a very different way than I can. So from that improv, I would then take the scene that we cut and then I would rewrite it and we would sometimes go back to the same location or just pick another location and shoot a scene that was half improv, half scripted, and, and that, that process. So, um, and The other thing that would happen in the editing room, is, uh, which was tricky, and um, you've got these actors were improvising, and you'll fall in love with a non-scripted scene, and then you cut it into your assembly, but I'm not comfortable working without a script I discovered. Like, I like to have a pretty clear narrative and a, and, a, and a pretty tight structure. So what we were doing was we kept, like, writing new scenes and new scenes in order to make some of these lines that we were falling in love with in the improv work. And we discovered this is going to be a four-hour movie if we continue to do this. So you have to kind of, you know, if anybody is interested in doing this kind of half scripted, you, you have to... Be careful not to, um, to work off of an outline at least. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so for you though, I mean, like you, for you as an actor, I mean, you know, people always ask actor directors like, "What's it like to direct yourself?" But and without asking that question, um, what's it like to direct yourself in in this context where, like you said, you know, the, there's no crew. Like, like, what were you experiencing as as an actor director with this sort of stripped down, you know, uh, you know, shoestring operation? Is it easier for you to direct yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think you ever really direct yourself, quite honestly. I mean, when you write the screenplays, you uh, at least for me, I, I'm making so many choices as an actor in the room in front of the computer. So, you know, I kind of know where, what I want to do and where I want to go with any scene. That said, I have, you know, I, I have a three-man team that we make these films with. But, you know, uh, we say that, you know, it's not a crew. It really is a full collaboration. So my collaborators, Will Rexer, Aaron Lubin, and a guy named Mike Harrop, um, they really are the directors for me on, on any scene where it's like, all right, I don't know exactly where to go with this. Or, uh, again, if the scene moves in a direction that I didn't anticipate, they can be there as sort of my eyes and ears. But 
that, that only happened a handful of times because you, I, I almost I really didn't need to direct the actors in this piece uh, as much as maybe you might otherwise because we did so many takes and it was free form and like I said before you know we're not calling cut you just say hey let's just take it back to the beginning and the actors would start up again or if I'm in the scene I kind of know where I want them to go so I would pull it back halfway or throw a different line at them to sort of have it move in a different direction um, and you never what, what can happen on a, a traditional film set is you know you've heard about the hurry up and wait it's nothing but downtime. And then when you finally get the opportunity to step on the court and play, you do one take and then, oh, oh, oh hold on, we got to make a lighting adjustment. And it's another 10 minutes of downtime. You know, we were shooting some days 14, 15 pages a day. So there was no downtime. And I think for the actors, they said it was, like, it was, it was more like doing theater in that you're up on your feet sometimes doing a five-page scene in one run without anyone calling cut. Um, and that's a very different sort of uh, ex uh, acting experience uh, for film. Right. So. And, you're, and you're able to like rehearse on camera almost and like get better and better. Yeah, and the other thing is there's no pressure. I mean, it, do you know, it, it doesn't cost you anything to shoot 19 takes on a flash drive, right. um, you know, especially when every location is for free. Uh, if we were shooting on film, uh, especially if you're making lower-budget films like, like I've made in the past, you know, you do not want to burn extra film because the film is expensive and the processing is expensive so of course the flip side is like david fincher who shoots the social network like 99 takes yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. digital but yeah. um what you a lot of your films say yeah i would say almost all your films are about relationships and friendships and bonds and they almost all somewhere along the line there's one or maybe two characters that are having going through a pivotal tense moment in their relationship for for newlyweds, how like when when you're making another relationship film, how do you sort of mine territory, new territory for you as a storyteller, as a, as a writer? You know, what was it about this particular project that you said, you know, I want to tell this story, and it, and how is it different from the other stories? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think the thing that I was exploring was sort of the what what makes for a successful marriage, and then and and what could possibly uh, contaminate uh, a marriage. So uh, the structure of the, the, the story is um, myself and this actress, Caitlin Fitzgerald, play two people who are on their second marriage. And they're going to be much more pragmatic in the, uh, their approach this time. It isn't about true love and you're my soulmate. It's about, well, look, I work nights, you work days. We'll only see one another on the weekends. And therefore, we won't get sick of one another and this thing will actually work. Um, so they think that they have this, this great plan laid out. Uh, what happens is uh, her sister ends up going through a divorce. My sister ends up showing up unannounced to stay with us. Um, so the things that, that I guess where I, you know, what I look at or, or where I find the stories is usually nine times out of ten, the people in my life. Um, like I said, I mentioned that dinner I was at, and somebody mentioned that comment about what you know the the, the ten years. Uh, but I'll then just start to ask people, you know, all right, you were a newly wedded couple. What was the worst thing that happened during that first year? I mean, I'm married, and I know a lot of people say the first year is the toughest. So there was no shortage of stories uh, to play with there. Um, so I really I, I go around and I ask people. And now I've started to incorporate sort of. 
uh, social media, media and Twitter, especially of kind of, I don't know if there's any people who have been involved in this process with me, but I would, I would tweet out like, all right, I got this idea for a movie. This is what I'm thinking. Um, does anybody have any good ideas? Um, well, I was going to say, it seems like um, for those of us who, who do follow you, uh, it definitely was, and he's Edward underscore Burns, if you don't follow him, um, it is that uh, this was, you were embracing crowdsourcing in a way that you hadn't before. And, and you know, it, whether it was ideas, whether it was, uh, artwork and most recently music for the film. What, where, when, why, why did you decide to do that? Uh, you know, is it just the, was it the, 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 because we live in 2011 and it's, it's, it's available now, but, and how was that informing the process, both from the music, because music's very important to your films and the writing's very important to your films. So for you to sort of s s give it to the, the audience to decide must have been a real leap of faith. Yeah, I, I think for me, it was thinking back to, you know, um, I, I've told this story before in the press. I was, I was at Hunter College studying film. I was walking down uh, West 4th Street, uh, and I was walking behind Spike Lee, um, and he was walking to what used to be the Waverly Theater, which is now the IFC. And I'm like 20 paces behind him, and I just want to ask him some questions about filmmaking. Um, and I don't have the balls to actually tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, Spike, you know, just give me one piece of advice. Um, so I thought, you know, once, uh, once I started to use Twitter and people started to sort of ask me those types of questions, I was like, oh, this is kind of a form of being able to do that thing maybe for someone that, um, that I didn't get the opportunity to do, let's say, with Spike back then. Uh, then an interesting thing happened. Um, there's a novelist named Jonathan Troper, who uh, uh, I'm a big fan of his, and I was reading his book called The Book of Joe, and I was, on a, I was going on a flight to L.A., so I tweeted a photograph of the book and just said, hey, you know, uh, this book is great. You guys should read it. And uh, I land in L.A., and there's a like tweet from him to me saying, oh, hey, I heard you gave my book a plug. Thanks. I was like... And I kind of admit, I kind of got like a little like uh, like geeky Struck. fan yeah, moment. Yeah. Like, oh, that's kind of cool huh? that he's reached out to me. So I was like, all right, if I'm thinking that's cool, this is a cool thing to start doing. Um, so that's when I really fully embraced it and started to open up myself more to the folks on Twitter. And I think the first thing I started to ask them about was the title of this movie. Um, and, you know, I mean, I got a bunch of great suggestions. Uh, ended up going with newlyweds but it was down to two titles and they were really helpful and then since then we've done a thing where we did you know just ask people who are um you know graphic designers or or even not like we wanted to do a special poster for for the festival so we tweeted out you know if anyone's got a cool poster idea draw one up and we'll we'll let the fans vote on the best one um so the guy who won is coming to the premiere and you know hanging out at our cast and crew party beforehand um, so that's pretty cool. And we just finished a song contest to find an unsigned act to, you know, we'll put his song um, playing out of one of the speakers in one of the restaurant scenes. So it's, you know, it's little things, but um, it's, it's kind of cool. It's huge. Yeah. No, it's huge yeah. for these guys, you know, to be able to do that. And it's great that you give back that way. Um, because obviously, for those of you who know, I mean, the story is you, you know, you wanted people to take a shot on you as a young filmmaker, and it worked out. You made Brothers McMullen. It took off your career started do you when you look at you know 
the the films that you've made, do you think you'll ever return to making like the bigger budgeted films, or do you is this where you want to be right now? I, I think this is where I want to be right now. I mean, the, the great thing, and you know, we got this film in the can, so it doesn't include the post production cost, but we got the film in the can for nine thousand yeah. dollars. And when you see the film, you're gonna look and say, "I don't fucking believe it," because <laughs> it looks gorgeous yeah. and it sounds great. And uh, that thing I was saying before about leveling the playing field, like you know, I was shocked even after the success of Brothers McMullen. I- I've never had a moment where I could take my script and go out to L.A. and have a guy cut a check and just say, "Oh, go make your film." You know, I'd ho- I always I always wanted the Woody Allen put deal, right. which is a deal where they'll just give you. You know, 25 or 15. I was like, give me six. I'll just make my little movies. Give me $6 million. I guarantee I'll make one a year. And you kind of know what my thing is. So let's do this. I'm telling you, we had to scrape together every cent we ever got. And it's, it's painful because, you know, if you're not getting the check from a Fox searchlight, you know, and you have to go out there sometimes to financiers or put together foreign, uh, foreign sales to get your money. Anyone cuts you a significant check, they now are your partner. And that partnership, uh, even if it doesn't, they believe that it entitles them to real participation and collaboration. And you'll end up getting lists of people that if you get one of these people, we will give you the rest of your money. If you don't, you're not going to get your money. Those people may not be right for the part, but you know what? You end up falling in love with them. They'll change the title on you. They will end up asking you to rewrite certain scenes. Um, and I got to a point where I realized, wait, Brothers McMullen was my most, uh, probably my most critically acclaimed movie, my most uh, uh, financially successful film. And it's the one film I made where I had no partners other than, you know, my collaborators, other than my friends who were my actors and my crew. And I thought, well, you know, all of my films. You know, I take a film like, I don't know, Purple Violets. I was like, I could have made that movie for $100,000. You know, I mean, it maybe wouldn't have looked the same, but, but the, the story still would have worked. I wouldn't have had, you know, Patrick Wilson and Selma Blair and Deborah Messing, but it kind of would have been a similar film. Right. Um, and that was actually a good experience as far as the financier on that. Maybe that's a bad example. The Groomsman <laughs> is a better one because that financier was not so much fun to work with. Um, but I just thought, why, why am I doing this? You know, like, I know how to make a movie for 25 grand. Yeah. And if I do that, no one can tell me what to do. And if you're going to fail, you want to fail on your terms. You know, I have a movie, they changed the title, they made a bunch of changes to the script. The company is now gone. The distribution company is gone. It lives on DVD. And all of those people who fought so hard to change the title and do this and do that, they're all either out of the business or have done these other films. Like They never think about that movie. I go on to Netflix. I see that title. It destroys me. So my thinking is, you know what? I'll figure out... Because it really is about compromise. So what what are the lists of compromise you're willing to make as a filmmaker or an artist? You make a movie for nine grand, the types of compromises you have to make are, all right, you're not going to get movie stars in your film. You know, you're not going to be able to shoot a scene in a location where you're going to need a thousand extras. Um, you know, there, there's a certain type of or a sized story that you're going to have to tell. And, you know, those will be the types of compromises you have to make. 
On the flip side, if you go to a studio and you're going to make that kind of film, there's a whole other list of compromises. You know, you will not have Final Cut. You won't cast who you want to cast. It will not be your story. You will not get to be a filmmaker with an individual voice, unless, of course, you're lucky enough to be one of the top five guys like a Fincher, you know? So I looked at it and said, you know, when I look at those two lists of compromises, I'm picking this list because at the end of the day, if the movie tanks, if it gets shitty reviews, at least it's on me. And, you know, if you want to be, you know, I hate to use the, the word artist, it sounds a little pretentious, but if that is what you aspire to, then that is the decision I think you have to make. That's a choice to make. That's a really good point. I'm biased, though, obviously, because I worked with you on your last movie, but which brings up the point, um, you know, for distribution of these titles, um, for Purple Violets, um, that you famously were the first person. Now it happens uh, often, but you were really the first person to pioneer the idea of bringing a film straight to iTunes. and, you know, you did a similar thing with Nice Guy Johnny, where it was, you know, iTunes and cable VOD and all those places. Um, I mean, is that what are the pros and cons of that? You know, for me, and I've said this before, um, well, fu- funny thing, you know, talking about Purple Violets and we, we released the film exclusively on iTunes. And I remember when we first made the decision and I did the, the first wave of press to talk about it. Everyone across the board said, are you out of your mother effing mind? Nobody's going to watch a movie on their phone. Nobody's going to watch a movie on their computer. And that's 07. And I'm telling you, like, everyone said that across the board. And now here we are four years later, and obviously we know it's a very different world. Um, The thing that I think for these smaller films is, you know, you just go, and, and, you know, Matt and I worked together last year, his company, Film Buff, um, distributed Nice Guy Johnny. And, you know, we had long talks about w- how much it costs to release a film theatrically. You know, the average cost is something like $45 million in uh, P&A, prints and advertising. Now, obviously, you know, uh, a studio film is going to spend a lot more than that, but even a respectable indie is going to have to spend a couple of million dollars. But then when you look at the box office returns of the majority of the indie titles... Um, they're doing under a half million dollars, you know, for every win-win, which might get to nine, maybe. Um, you know, there's hundreds of titles. Go online and look at IFC's release slate. Oh, it's depressing. It's yeah. uh, there are movies making, you know, eight thousand dollars in their theatrical run, and you know they know. All right, this is a, we call it a, like a loss leader. We'll use the theatrical as sort of the promotional. Or uh, aspect, I guess, or spend marketing. Uh, marketing in order to drive your DVD sales and your VOD and and um, and such. But we looked at how much money we made on iTunes alone from Purple Violets, and we said, wait, if that's the guaranteed, or we even when we did our math, we cut that number in half. We said, all right, that's a six-figure number. Nice guy, Johnny. We made for twenty-five thousand dollars. Why would we gamble? on theatrical and potentially be in the whole $2 million. Yeah. If we just go on iTunes, we're going to make money. And as I said, you know, for me, it's only about being able to make another one. I love this too much to spend three years hat in hand with my script only to tell some schmuck with an, uh, uh, an MBA telling me what doesn't work about my script. I'm like, dude, I went to film school. This is all I do. <laughs> I never studied numbers. So I'm not going to talk to you about your books. Please don't talk to me about my screenplay. Right. 
However, that is not the world we live in. So, um, but anyhow, we looked at we looked at what we could make that way, and then with Matt, we sort of said, well, how else? You know, if that's what iTunes potentially can make us, where else can we get some money without having to spend a single cent marketing or advertising in the film? VOD was a big component, and we were lucky enough to have a great relationship with Comcast and Time Warner, and they helped push the movie. Um, and, uh, and then uh, a really good Netflix sale. And I'm telling you, Nice Guy Johnny made, like, real money. Yeah. And we sat there and said, well, I, we're done with theatrical. I mean, I don't, you know, I, you know, I'm a New Yorker from 19, you know, from Long Island, but I'm, I lived here since 1990. I went to the Angelica every week of my life for 15 years. I haven't been there uh, in probably, well, eh, I bet four years now because I'm watching my indie films you know, at home on a, you know, a nice, you know, HD flat screen. Yeah. And, you know, when I've tweeted out or Facebooked folks about where are you watching these indie titles, most people are telling me they're watching it at home uh, in some fashion on BOD, Netflix, or iTunes. And yeah. um, we just look at those numbers and we look at the math. I mean, the thing that you won't get is, you know, you'll never enter, you won't have the pop culture moment. You'll never enter that public uh, consciousness where, Everyone is talking about your film. But, you know, that, I, you look at my films. Those are not the films I make. You know, that was never part of the game plan. So for me, if it's about, you know, sort of a fiscally responsible game plan to stay in biz, to keep doing my thing, keep telling my stories, then I don't think we'll ever go back to theatrical. I think, you know, I'm, again, I'm biased, but I think that's smart. Um, the, uh, one of the things I've heard you say before, which I think is a really great point, is, you know, back in the golden age of American independent film, when you had these films gross a million dollars, that was considered amazingly epic. And in today's world, that's a disappointment. And it just doesn't seem fair. Oh. Saturday night, 6.30. Okay, so we'll open up the floor uh, for some questions. Uh, don't, don't forget, you need the mic. Great, we have a microphone. If you raise your hand, we'll bring it to you. Cool, we got a first question right here in the second row. Hi, Ed, how are you? My Good name man. is uh, Sean Roman. When you're going outside, is this all complete natural lighting? And what is the cameraman doing to stabilize the camera? Is he just walking back as you guys have your conversation and rotating around you like I'm doing right now? Or is he doing something a little He's bit a more little elaborate? He's a smoother than you. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, no, you know, I mean, we, we didn't use any of the rigs that uh, people claim you need. We didn't use the stabilizer effect on the camera. Um, really just handheld. Uh, and again, you know, we probably did eight different takes of that, and you're kind of finding what works and what shots work. You know, it's not, it isn't a film that we shot listed. Uh, again, we didn't scout the location. We don't, we didn't have, you know, permits for that particular day. So you just kind of look for a corner, and, you know, we went around the other side of the building that was in the shade because the camera doesn't ha handle high contrast or sunlight as well. Um, and that was it. Was that the question? Just sort of how do we? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So just a simple handheld and. Oh yeah, and we did, and all available light. I mean, really, we used available light even on uh, most of the interiors and even a couple of night interiors. We just used practical lights. You know, we didn't use sort of film lights. So. Next question. Going over here. Oh, go ahead. Hi, Ed. How hey. are you? Hey. This is more of a, I guess, a thank you than a question. 
Uh, I just wrapped up. I guess this is what I was going to say. Is this is more like my, I guess, my Spike Lee moment here. But uh, I just wrapped up my first independent on the 5D. And uh, it would have never happened had I not seen the Brothers McMullen maybe 12, 13 years ago. And, uh, I mean, I remember when it first came out. And it was the first time where I, I said to myself, I'm a noble. I'm, I, I can do this. You know what I mean? And I don't have to go to film school. And I can just go for it. You know I mean? I know you did. But, uh, and it was just... It, if it wasn't for you, I would have never done it. And I chased the dream because of you. So thank you so much, man. That's cool. Thank you, man. Thank you. Um, and the thing is, you know, we made McMullen, even though that was $25,000, that's, you know, we're shooting on a borrowed 16-millimeter film camera. I have to re-enroll back in college to get the student discount for recanned film stock that's left over from music videos and commercials. Um, and we're cutting uh, on film. You know, like trying to sync sound old school. You guys now, and you know, me too, with this technology, have such an enormous advantage. I mean, I can't tell you enough. Like, if you think you want to do this, get a camera, go out, make a 10 minute short, you know, see if you got any talent, see if you'll love it. I mean, that's the other thing. You got to fucking love it because it is so hard. And even when you make these films, you know, we have to fight tooth and nail to get anyone to see these films. So, you know, it has to be the thing you need to do with all of your might. Um, but it's so much easier for you guys now to not only make them, but to also have a place to, to show them. You know, back then, if McMullen doesn't get into the Sundance Film Festival, nobody's ever heard of Brothers McMullen. I mean, it just, it dies then and there. Um, you know, and now you can put it up and, you know, that long tail theory that eventually people are going to stumble upon your film, even if you don't get distribution. So you got to just keep at it. If you make a short, you can just put it on YouTube and yeah. see if you get a following. Next uh, question in the back corner. Go. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, repeat the name of the sound pack that you talked about earlier, and also if um, could you compare shooting and post on the red and the five D. What was the good and the bad on both? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the sound thing I think is called an M audio. If you just Google that, it'll come up. It almost looks like an old Sony Walkman, um, and it's a flash drive recorder. Uh, the difference between the red and the 5D, you know, the 5D in a low light situation um, was better for us because we were using available light than the red. Uh, however, the red now has a new sensor that apparently is on par with what the 5D gives you in low light. Um, posting, the workflow on both of them was pretty seamless. You know, we cut on, um, on Final Cut and, on both films and both of those, uh, I guess, media files, maybe you'd call it, both flow into that system seamlessly. And, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, again, the, the difference is, you know, back in 95, we're cutting on a moviola. You know, we cut this film, you know, on my desktop computer. So it's, uh, you know, it's a brand new world. All right, we have a question in the front left. Hello, Ed. I'm Hello. Sasha. Um, from the experience of this film, how does uh, your casting approach change? Are you looking for a different breed of actors that respond to this DIY approach? And did you use permits? Uh, we, I don't think we used permits. <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe we did, some days. We had insurance. Well, it's a documentary. <laughs> it's a doc. Yeah. So and my dad's a retired New York City cop, so if he ever gotten into any trouble, I tell him, call Sergeant Burns. Um, but, uh, yeah, the actors, it was, um, what we did was, and I told this story back in Nice Guy Johnny, but I'll, I'll repeat it. The great thing, when we made McMullen, we put an ad in um, Backstage Magazine. 
I got like, you know, 2,500 headshots of people. And, you know, basically the ad said like, you know, non-union actors, no pay, we'll feed you. And I found all these, you know, I mean, I found Connie Britton, who just like won an Emmy for Friday Night Lights, you know. So New York, I mean, you guys are lucky. We have the greatest resource of super talented, hungry, and, you know, a lot of times out of work actors. So you're making a film like this or Nice Guy Johnny, you know, I told them they have to wear their own clothes. Uh, you know, they're not going to make a lot of money, get the SAG minimum. Um, they're going to do their own hair and makeup. Uh, we don't have an AD department, so you're not going to get your pages beforehand. I'll say, like, look, we're probably going to shoot, you know, any number of these scenes, so just make sure you're prepared. Um, but with that, uh, I was also looking for people who would be down with that, but we're also open to this kind of level of collaboration that I talked about. And, and part of that is, hey, you know, like if you're not acting in that scene, you know, help us in, in the crew department or go get lunch for everybody else. And everybody across the board is down with that. Now, this cast, it's, you know, Kerry Bechet um, was in Nice Guy Johnny. Uh, Max Baker is a guy I met. We were in this Angelina Jolie romantic comedy like 15 years ago, or maybe not that long. Life or something like it. So I keep casting him in everything. And Max is a guy, he's a Shakespearean trained actor from London. This guy is so good. And last year after Nice Guy Johnny, he says to me, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit acting and just become a painter. It's like, there's no good work. Um, I, I go out to L.A. for pilot season. It's so depressing. Um, I said, Max, I'm going to do this other movie. Um, I'm, I want you to play the, the lead in the other couple. I was like, what is your sweet spot? Like, tell me what kind of character can I write for you that you will hit out of the park? Because every, every actor has their sweet spot. And he told me that. So I wrote the part for Max. When you see the film, this guy's incredible. And then there's another woman, uh, Marsha Bennett, who played Nice Guy Johnny's mom. She's another one. We're like, I feel sometimes like, what am I doing with these guys? Because they've all done like Shakespeare in the Park. You know, I have never, you know, prior to Private Ryan, I never spoke a line of dialogue I didn't write. Um, so, Marsha, I said the same thing. Like, what do you want to play? Like, you're going to play Max's wife. This is what's happening in the story. These are the, this is the arc and the beats. But you tell me how to color it in, and I'll put it in your wheelhouse. So, Marsha. Um, uh, Dara Coleman's another guy, uh, an Irish actor that I've worked with that I found at the Irish Rep Theater uh, 12 years ago, and he's done five films with me. Same thing. Like, what's your sweet spot? The only actor in this that I hadn't worked with before uh, is the woman that plays the lead, Caitlin Fitzgerald. Um, uh, but, you know, she's a New Yorker. When we told her our approach, she's like, wait, you know, like, that's how you make movies? I'm in. Like, I just want to act. And if you're telling me we're going to do 14 pages a day, like, actors get off on that. Like, they want to work. They don't want to sit in a trailer. You know, they want to, like, get out there and help you create a real character. So. Great. Uh, next question, second row. I, I was wondering, uh, with a Canon 5D, I'm thinking about getting one, but I was wondering in post-production if you're having is any issues with audio sync um, and frame rate. I've heard uh, that the camera can also overheat after a certain amount of time of shooting? Uh, the camera will turn itself off at the end of a, uh, when you hit a 10-minute clip, which I think is sort of built in to help it not uh, overheat. Uh, no problems with the frame rate at all. You know, you have a thing, if you, depending on the kind of film, like you saw our style, uh, if you're making an action film and you had like, you know, sort of more whip pans or things like that, it, it kind of, it, it had, the image will slightly bend. 
if you move too quickly. Um, but there's a, and I don't know what the program is, but there's a program, because again, you know, we didn't have a, an AC. We never used a clapboard. I mean, the actors would have to stand, in order to sync, before every new take, the actor would just clap. Um, and w there's a program where the flashcard audio will sync up to your, um, your camera audio, which you can't really use. That, that, unlike the red, to, the, to answer that question, the, on Johnny, we recorded our sound directly into the red. We didn't use a separate system. You can't do that on the 5D. Um, but there's a program where basically it will sync your sound based on sound waves. So, um, so again, technology is kind of just awesome right now. Question from the back. Hey, Ed. Uh, my name is Nate over here. Oh, yeah, okay, cool. Hey, um, I'm a composer. I've done a number of you know, smaller films, mostly shorts. I've done a bunch of advertising work. Um, I'm a guitar player. Kind of just do the whole musical thing. Um, I've recently gotten more into doing uh, film score and film work, and I've uh, noticed a repeating experience that on the smaller, more collaborative, collaborative efforts, uh, directors and producers seem to have a very, very concise vision of what they want musically, and, and that's cool for me as a musician, but oftentimes I feel like it doesn't necessarily jive with my own personal take on it. And, I'm a team player, I want to be accommodating, want to you know, make it happen as the director sees fit. But I've more, more than once kind of seen the film maybe, maybe not turn out as strong as I feel it could have had I been more insistent on my own ideas. As a director, how do you, where's that line? How do you like to work with your composers or any, any creative collaboration like that? How does that work for I, you? You know, the composer, I got very lucky. I mean, years ago, I met the, I was, taken guitar lessons at Ludlow Guitars and one of the young guys there who was giving me lessons I was making this low budget movie called Looking for Kitty we had no money for music I mentioned this to him he goes oh I should give you my you know uh, my demos I loved his stuff and since then um, he's been my composer and you know we've done I think five films now together so we have really found you know, we have very similar tastes in movies and in music. So we kind of, we're lucky. I mean, we fell into that spot. But again, that was my sixth film. So um, I, don't, I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. A big part of it is, you know, I got lucky in that I was in that guitar store and met this guy and we were, you know, in sync. Um, uh, but but, but with, 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 you're talking about um, Mr. P.T. Walkley, like what, what was it that kept you coming back to him? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what was it that keeps you in sync? And when do you bring him into the process? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, just, I think, a similar sensibility. Um, you know, now he gets brought in during the script stage, and we'll talk about, you know, this film um, has very little sort of score or, or music. It's mostly, it's mostly sore, so we... Uh, it was sort of a, more of a challenge for him because, like, all right, we need kind of like it's an Argentinian restaurant. We need some kind of you know song that we playing on the radio there that would work. Um, we need a, like a, a pop song for these this couple to dance to. So he got very kind of tricky specific assignments there, which you know some composers love because oh hey you know I, I I love to write different in different styles and never get the opportunity. Other times, like a film like Purple Violets, we talked about the kind of score, you know, that we wanted. 
sort of a modern rock, but kind of atmospheric. And um, so he would then, he'd put together some quick compositions and send them my way and said, you know, in this direction or in that direction. And um, I'd start to throw some of that against picture. And that's the other great thing that happens with music and, and film. Like sometimes you can write against picture. It's supposed to work. You're on the same page. And you look at it, and it just doesn't work. And other times, he'll have a cut, and you just needle drop it, and it's if he composed it cut for cut. And that's just the magic of the, you know, the editing process. Uh, I think we have time for two more questions. Uh, first oh, of those two is back in the corner. Um, working uh, on the street with like a two-man crew and the 5D, um, how many lenses did you have, and did you have any like, favorites that you worked with? Yeah, I mean, we used the, again, because it was a pseudo-doc, we, we used the, uh, the zoom that comes with it, which I forget, maybe it's a 25 to 85, I think. Um, and we played with that only periodically. Uh, we, Canon has three sort of higher end, and again, at higher end, I think they were only about $300, $350. We shot this film on three lenses, um, uh, the 85, the 50, and the 24. up front a lot of technical stuff today it's <laughs> the apple store hey mr burns first hey. of all it's not a question i just wanted to thank you i don't know if you know like and i'm sure you hear this like a million times a day like how like highly respected you are and like what an inspiration you are to like people like at my level like i've been such a fan since like 96 since like she's the one and i totally changed my majors in college like after watching that and like we I tell the story and people like laugh at me, but we had to, for one of my film classes, write a paper about a filmmaker that we were like, you know, would die to like work with. And everybody in my class like chose like Spiel, you know, whatever, Spielberg, Coppola. And I wrote about you, and I mean that in the most like respectable, non creepy way. But they, like, they give you an F? my professor totally knew who you were, but it was like eons ago, and my ignorant colleagues would be like, Who's that? Oh, is that that old guy? I'm like, no, that would be like George Burns, and he's dead. But I was like, he, you're like just fucking awesome. Thank you so much for continuing to do like what you do, and I, thank you. I just wanted to say thank you. So, well, thank you. Uh, that's some real Appreciate talk that. right there. Sorry, are we? Okay. Well, wait. I have one question for right. you. Um, so we're in New York, 10th anniversary of Tribeca Film Festival. Woody Allen is a big influence for you a big you know a uh, filmmaking idol do you, will you ever make the the european films or do you think you'll always make films in new york no you know we we actually met uh, a guy recently from the irish film board and oh, yeah. yeah and uh I'm sure you know him yeah. as well and talking to him about maybe doing a film in ireland and my wife and i always talk about she's like when are you just going to write those two small scripts that you can shoot in tuscany <laughs> yeah. uh and we'll just go live in you know in right. tuscany for two years so maybe that might be uh on the on the agenda one day nice. thanks to everybody big round of applause to ed burns hey guys um thank you very much um really really appreciate it and go make your movies do it Saturday night, closing night at Tribeca Film Festival. Thank you again one more time. Ed Burns, ladies and gentlemen, Ed Burns, thank you so much.
Um, events happening all the time. Apple.com forward slash retail forward slash Tribeca. You can find out exactly what's happening when and where. So many things going on so often. Stay in the know. Also, if you don't have time to get to the website, go ahead and download the free app, the Tribeca Film Festival app. Uh, this will let you know exactly what's screening when and where, as well as what's going on at the stores. Really good to help you plan out the rest of your week. Thank you so much for coming out, guys. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the evening, and we hope to see you again tomorrow night. We have three amazing events happening starting here tomorrow, and I believe 5.30 is the first one. Uh, but check the website. I might have just made that up. So I'll see you guys a little bit later. Take care. Thank you again, and have a good night.